Welcome to another episode of Ready Teacher One. I'm Adam Mangana. And I'm Ryan McLaughlin. And with us this evening is Sunil Singh. Sunil is the author of Math Recess, Playful Learning in an Age of Disruption, as well as Pie of Life. Sunil, we are so happy to have you on this evening. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, no worries. Thank you so much for having me. I'm already looking forward to the robust discussions ahead in the next 30 minutes. Fantastic. Well, Sunil, I've been following you on Twitter for a while now, and uh, one of your most recent tweets caught my attention. <laughs> you put up a picture of kind of a standard decimal multiplication problem that would yeah. be familiar to anyone that's, you know, kind of been through fourth or fifth grade math, right? right. And you kind of talked about the brokenness of the problem, uh, especially in an age when we have calculators. Uh, and you talked about how the problem was broken because it, you can't expect any child to walk away from it with a deeper understanding of the math that they're doing. Could you kind of break that down for us a little bit and tell us how you kind of arrived at that opinion? Well, I mean, anytime you give time and oxygen to one problem, you're also taking away time and oxygen from another. Right. So that problem to me, uh, only because I remember even, you know, I think I was multiplying decimals for my daughter's homework even a year ago. And I forgot how to do it. Sure. Like I forgot how to, all the things about the number of decimals. Like, and then of course, when you have to multiply decimals, multiplying numbers by long multiplication is already messy because you have to start writing with all these sort of uh, smaller uh uh, numbers in sort of on top of them and crossing like what is it if 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 you're going to have students understand the algorithm exactly what's happening in terms of place value all the power to you but if it is just a method to get the answer which is has a possibility of being incorrect because of all those sort of messiness that's entailed and look sometimes messiness is good that's not good messiness that's a that's a complete utter waste of time because up until the advent of calculators, um, that was really kind of the the whole hurdle is that, you know, we need to have these sort of computational algorithms in the 40s and 50s, and I guess maybe the early part of the 60s. Once the calculators came, why are we still doing those problems? Right, right. It has, it has zero meaning. It, unless you're going to start to, to talk about in terms of how do you get those number of place uh, decimal places or just the sort of you know why do we you know like <laughs> when we're doing um, um uh, multiplying you know uh, we're also sorry subtracting the long the long subtraction algorithm we have this thing where we borrow well why do we say borrow because you never give back right right, right. And, and it's actually kind of cool how you start dropping off things of all the cross through all the zeros because you couldn't get there. That's a cool thing happening, but we don't explain that. It's just another messy algorithm. So we're spending time here. That's going to cause students frustration, like multiplying decimals. If you want to, I, I'm, I'm kind of going off on a rant here, but if you want to convince students to not, to take the enjoyment out of mathematics and go, you know what? In five, six years, you're going to want to drop it and you can give them enough of these, these decimal questions because I'm pretty sure 
that will probably have done it for a lot of students going, this is math. Right. You reminded me in a lot of ways of, uh, I'm sure you've seen this, Conrad Wolfram had a TED talk that oh, came yeah, out yep, probably, yep. Um, it must have been 10 or 12 years now ago, right, that yeah, that TED talk that came time, out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Conrad really framed it as exactly how you just framed it. You know, this might have had some value 60, 70, 80 years ago when we didn't have the technology that we do. But now it's kind of just a, another frustrating obstacle on the path of a student. But, you know, Conrad gave that talk, like I said, 10 or 12 years ago. We're still having this conversation in 2021. What do you think is holding education back from adopting that mindset? What's holding us back from going full Conrad Wolf from math class? <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of things holding us back, but the, I think one of the main things holding us back is we don't have a deep why as to why students learn mathematics. Yeah. Um, and I mean like a deep why, it's kind of been based upon, which really hasn't changed, is that, okay, you need it for maybe a career vocation, you need it to balance your checkbook, you get to use, all, it's all based on external practicality to function society. And I'm not saying that's not important, that's, that's pretty, re that's important. That's only half the story. The right. other half of the story is what does it do for you as a student in terms of how you value mathematics? We don't talk about that. And again, school's purpose, you know, unfortunately is mostly rooted in external performance for society. So why are you going to be devil's advocate? Change that because, you know, you're just going to keep doing the same old, same old, you're going to, you know, have these tests and all these things and you're gonna filter, sort, filter, sort, repeat. We we don't ask the big why. And it's kind of being asked right now. I mean, we're discussing it um, as we sort of speak to tonight, but I, I don't think we've ever done a deep dive. And to make sure that the why for studying mathematics encompasses all the whys. So yes, definitely uh, practical, you know, career, STEM initiatives, all those things, very important having a critical analysis of the world, uh, data science, absolutely important. But there's other reasons to study mathematics. Like my own daughter and son, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what they're gonna do for a living. I mean, whatever it is, I hope it makes them happy. My daughter looks like she's heading towards, you know, something with animals and veterinary stuff. And I don't know, but she's still gonna get the same mathematics from me, whether she decide to become an engineer or a baker. Right. <laughs> there's gonna be no drop off. Right. Because right. the way that I see mathematics is that it is a valued illumination for yourself. So speaking of this valued illumination, we see a, a decentralization happening in the public school system, in the school system in general. We, we're seeing uh, these kind of institutions that are very hierarchical fail us. And so from first principles, if you had the opportunity to start a virtual school, and yep. you were designing a math program. And all they said was, make sure children fall in love with math. How would you design it? I, I'm laughing at that question, Adam, because I'm already doing it. Um, I, I, nice. teach, I, I teach at uh, Dexter Learning, which is a, has a brick and mortar school in Wichita Falls, Texas, but also has a virtual component to it. And, uh, 
uh, Laura Serino, who's uh, who works there, and she asked me like last summer, "Hey, would you be interested in teaching Dexter like remotely, virtual?" And the only reason I said yes, and I told her, is that it was the only time in my entire career where I was given a choice of what to teach. All they asked was, "You let us know what ages and grades you're kind of, you know." And, like I've never been given that complete freedom to do what I want. So freedom is the number one thing, the freedom to choose the mathematics and even students to have the freedom. Like they can take my course math recess, which is for like fifth and sixth graders. They can take the eighth grade course called algebra, uh, heroes journey through the unknowns. All these courses have these sort of nice. whimsical names. And I realized that if I have complete freedom, then my goal, as you said, Adam, is just going to be like every single minute I stream, it's about uh, engendering their curiosity and making sure at the end that they are like, you know, completely enchanted and sort of referencing Francis Sue because he always talked about expect enchantment. So I always make sure that my students are enchanted at the end. I love that so much. Um, similar to you, I have only had one opportunity in my entire career as a math <laughs> teacher to teach exactly what I wanted. And it was, uh, it was a course that was specifically for students who had already completed all the AP math classes prior to their 12th grade year. And it was called simply advanced topics. And when the administrator asked me, would you teach advanced topics? I said, okay, what would you like me to teach in it? And they looked at me and said, topics that are advanced. I said, okay, great, whatever I want then. Um, and we ended up having a blast diving into set theory and all sorts of wonderful things. But um, it struck me that it took getting all the way through this incredibly long grind, all the way through the AP calculus courses and the AP stats. And finally, at the end of the grind, did these students get to have fun with math? Do they get to see the beauty of math? Do they get to see the enchantment, like you said? Um, how do you go about getting more of that beauty and enchantment front-loaded into the earlier grades? And, and how do you, what do you say to someone who may say to you, well, you know, that all sounds great, but uh, in fifth grade, we really got to get on these mixed numbers. My, my subtle pushback would be, why do you have to get on the mixed numbers? And if you're going to eventually take the breadcrumbs to it's part of um, the standards and curriculum, then I'll push you there too. Like, okay, so you're doing it because you have to, not because you want to. I'll respect that decision, but we need to go, why are you doing this? And again, students will, we don't have enough faith in our students. Like, okay, we got to do three digit, uh, you know, multiplication by third grade. Why? Because it's, I would say the first three, four, I would say at the fourth grade, if I was to design my own curriculum, I would have basic number sense and learn some basic ideas of addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, some basic ideas. But I would spend the, the basically those four or five years just playing like um, uh, sort of number games like Sim and Nim, just puzzles, just get their creative juices going um, lateral thinking puzzles, all these kind of overlapping skills, which actually occur, we do mathematics, 
multiplying three-digit numbers, if they're interested in it, they'll want to know it. And that's, it's where their want intersects their, their maturity. <laughs> like, it, that's, how we, that's how we exist. Like, at that's some true. point, they're going to go, okay, I, I can do, you know, these two-digit times one-digit or one-digit by one-digit in my head, three-digit by three-digit. That's kind of complicated. Like, they, they will get there. Sure. And we just, we got everything on the clock. And that's the big, to me, that is like the biggest problem. And I'll tell you why, because the entire history of mathematics, I mean, the entire history of mathematics prior to education has been about slow failure. Yeah. That's it. It's slow failure. One failure after another till maybe sometimes as late as 352 years in case of Andrew Wells, you know, solving Fermat's last enigma. And what about the, you know, dozens of amazing mathematicians who failed? I mean, these things take a long time. And what kind of communication message do we send students uh, in school? It's about fast success. Right. And no wonder there is math anxiety, math trauma, because the way they were delivering mathematics is not the organic narrative supposed to be. You are supposed, for me, and for many, like <laughs> the failure is the most awesome thing. There should be a course in school called Failure Lab, where you come into the school, into that course, and what do you ask your teacher, what are you going to do today? You're going to fail. That's the expectation. You're going to do a math problem and you're not going to be able to get it right. There you go. You, you actually encourage that kind of, yeah, of course, you'll push them. They'll, they'll want to come out. But it's like, nope, told you you're gonna, you weren't going to get it. And you disarm the anxiety by allowing failure to have a seat in the classroom. What does the future of math instruction look like? There are obviously different external pressures now. We have um, emerging technologies that are going to make it very evident that um, a large swath of our population will need to be retrained. What do you imagine uh, 10 years from now? What do you imagine uh, the big topics in math education being? Well, technology, I just wrote a piece for uh, California Math Council, um, their quarterly magazine, uh, communicator is actually just published in March, um, and it was called uh, uh, "Using uh, Technology uh, for Students Using Technology for Loving Mathematics," um, okay. and technology should be used for that purpose. And so this will be a big decade for technology. But there's a really good image that uh, I came across several years ago. It's very powerful. So you've got a silhouette of a tree. And then beside it, you have a silhouette of an iPad. And underneath it, it says, um, uh, I wasn't, uh, <laughs> did I forget? Um, something to do with homework. I, okay, so I, I'll remember, I had a complete brain cramp. But basically, it was like the same purposes of, you know, uh, tree and paper, and you've got this technology interface. That's not what technology was supposed to be in terms of, you know, mimicking right, things we've been doing. The thousand uh, dollar pencil. Yeah, and technology uh, should be what we haven't been able to do uh, in the past. Gotcha. So yeah. to that end, you know, we see blockchain and we see AI and one of the most interesting technologies, virtual reality and augmented reality have really, you know, they, there's not a lot of great content in VR, AR, for mathematics. 
what do you think the barriers are and what do you think the solution might be? If somebody said, hey, I have a million dollars for you, I'd like you to build an incredible VR math experience that is gamified and that uh, allows you to accomplish things mathematically that you could not without this technology, how might you begin to think about that? I think part of the problem of the great technology and poor content comes from the static uh, acceptance that the math that I learned is the same math that I'm going to teach and how can it be too much different? Like how much more math is there out there? Well, that's another ironic comment. I mean, if I was to write the curriculum, I mean, I'd be including number theory, game theory, um, you know, graph theory. Uh, I would have, uh, you know, mathematical expectation and probability and statistical analysis and um, utility, all these really cool ideas. And so the, the problem is that I don't think the, the people who are using these technologies are aware of anything but it's like they go into their cupboard and they've bought this like, you know, uh, amazing, I don't know, uh, the, the air fryer, everything. Okay, you've got this amazing air fryer. You're just gonna use what's in the cupboard? Wow, yeah. Why don't you just go there and get something like a nice, nice piece of uh, chicken or fish and test it out like really up to date. Like, let's see what you can do. I'm breaking out the rutabagas. I'm, we're going to go rutabagas. <laughs> All rutabagas. And Roots. that's yeah. why at, at Mathagon, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's heads and shoulder above everything else in terms of because it's, it's adhering to the, the pillars of what technology should be. You should have, it should be free and have, it should be have in terms of equity and access. That's, yes, that's the it, first thing. Say more about your work at Mathagon, because I know that that's something that Adam and I both wanted to ask you about. Yeah. We'd love to hear what the vision is, what your involvement is, all that good stuff. Well, they, uh, I, I started uh, at Mathagon last year uh, when they were looking for content writers. And um, I was just, and I've already had experience like going to Mathagon. They've done some amazing things even before last year. And so I'm uh, currently uh, finishing a course because uh, they have also courses uh, and my course is going to be Introduction to Algebra. It's going to be for sixth, but it's going to be highly, highly interactive uh, because uh, there isn't a tutor there. There isn't a teacher. So it has to be really intuitive. It has to uh, utilize the creativity of the students to progress through the course and progress the course so that their output is that they're enchanted. They see math as beautiful, that they understand the interplay, you know, in terms of whatever some of the things are happening in algebra. And that's Philip's, uh, you know, raison d'etre. That's his purpose is really to use technology for what wasn't possible before. So to use technology just so now you can click on a multiple choice button or that's that's not that's not technology, and that now reminds me of that uh, uh, image now. So it was the image of the uh, silhouette of a tree, and the image the silhouette of an iPad, and underneath the tree it said, "I wasn't meant to be a worksheet," and underneath the iPad it says, "Neither was I." Here, here. 
here, here. You are uh, you are preaching to the choir on that. <laughs> one. And uh, so the, 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 there's so much like if you go to their polypad. I mean, their polypad is so interactive. We've just uh, a couple months a couple months ago we added these um, uh, things called columns, which are uh, sort of South Indian art, which South Indian women do uh, with rice flour and water. Beautiful geometry. So. The idea of also uh, making sure that the stories and narratives of all the different cultures, races, and civilizations which have participated in mathematics are told. So using technology to teach about math history, which is also really important in, in our climate today. So Absolutely. for me, Mathagon represents a leader uh, as well as Desmos in kind of having students have these amazing technological tools to interact with math. So after they interact with it, they have a better identity with it and they feel better about themselves with mathematics. So Neil, if, if we were to go to that uh, website, Mathagon, yeah. um, and we were visiting it kind of for the first time, how would you, how would you what would you tell folks to focus on to begin? We're here well, I would actually, I mean, I would obviously go to watch the overview just to be enamored by it, but I would actually go to the polypad because I think most teachers uh, use sort of virtual manipulatives and, you know, you've got all these shapes, you can scroll down, you can rotate them. Um, if you if you bring it down, uh, I think that you can see the menu, you'll be able to see the columns which are there. Um, there's fraction bars. Um, there's a whole bunch of things. Yeah, uh, you know, there's the all. It, it's basically this amusement park for mathematics. That's wow. wonderful. I want to go back to uh, the cultural piece that you mentioned, which I think is so important. I um, so I work for a nonprofit called To Move Mountains that's um, helping to rebuild an education system in Sudan. And uh, I've been nice. working with some uh, teachers in training, and I kind of put together a lesson for them on critical pedagogy that they're going to be going through tomorrow. But one of the things that we talked about in that lesson is, of course, math. I have to bring it back to math. I'm a math guy. Um, and I kind of showed them like some common pictures of mathematicians that one sees in your average math textbook that's sold anywhere in the Western world, right? Nice. And of course, it's Pythagoras, it's Euclid, it's Newton, it's Leibniz, it's Euler, it's Gauss. And at the end, you're left with nothing but white men. And so it seems to me that, you know, a huge part of the problem is, of course, that, um, you know, not only are students not seeing the beauty and the enchantment in math, but they're also not seeing themselves in math, right? And of course, it's, it's a totally myopic view of history because of course those aren't the only great mathematicians. Of course, great mathematicians come in every race and in every gender, and yet we're failing to show students themselves in the math as well. And, you know, I, I made this point several times. I think I included it in my book because it made me chuckle, but I, I would not uh, blame students if they thought that you know, aliens dropped mathematics in a test tube on a beach 100 years ago. Right. Um, because that's how inert and sort of um, non-human it is. And sure, they see the, all those thumbnails of white mathematicians. The ironic part, and, you know, we, this is not about, this is like, 
we want to add the the mathematicians whose stories have been you know marginalized and shaded into obscurity like i'll give you a perfect example this is like this is a classic example of just how the contributions of um non-white uh, non-european mathematics is not part of the mainstream west vernacular is the pascal's triangle now pascal right was the last person in line of the names I'm gonna give you who discovered this triangle and somehow he gets his name on it. Uh, the first person who discovered um, that uh, triangle of numbers was a Sanskrit poet named Pangala in three, uh, 300 uh, BCE, before current era. The next person who discovered uh, that uh, whole sort of sequence um, was uh, Omar Khayyam, um, the right. Arabic mathematician. And after that, it was uh, uh, Yang Hui uh, in China. After that, it was Tetraglia of Italy. And then finally, it was Pascal. So how do we get Pascal's name, who was the last person in line, and all of a sudden, that's the name it's used? Like, at the, at the, at the very least, it should be all those people mentioned. But in truth, he should be barely a footnote because where it came from was from Sanskrit poetry and looking at vowels of long and short and creating this binary kind of relationship and all that. Most people don't know that. Right. Well, it's, it's the same story to, to use a more recent example. You know, Mandelbrot gets all the credit for fractal geometry. But of course, we now know that fractal geometry was widely used in sub-Saharan Africa yep. hundreds of years before Mandelbrot walked this earth. Yep. And it's, it's part of indigenous design. Um, and the person who discovered that, Dr. Ronald Glash, who's an ethnomathematician, it was by pure fluke. Um, he was studying aerial photographs right. of uh, uh, the, the huts of uh, in Tanzanian villages. And he was looking at the, and he's going, okay, there's something, something going on those thatched roofs. And then he looked at it more closely and uh, some of his sort of uh, computer background, like this looks sort of uh, uh, repeating like this iteration. Are these fractals on top of these thatched roofs in Tanzania? And then he got this Fulbright scholarship and he basically investigated that uh, these fractals he thought might be indigenous to a lot of other cultures. They're indigenous only to African cultures and it permeates everything from like their roofs to their pottery, to their textile, to the social hierarchy. There is a lot of advanced mathematics happening in Africa. Right, right, absolutely. And one of the things that I absolutely love about our current age of technology is that we can democratize that reality. We can take that information Very and spread it to the masses. Whereas before it might've only been math nerds like you and I that knew that <laughs> reality, right? But now in this golden age of information, we can get that to everyone that cares to know it. And one of the things which I just found out about uh, African mathematics is a lot of the mathematics, uh, uh, I think it's in, in Angola, um, was done in the sand. So part of the project was to erase the archive. So a lot of it, that's why, and that's the way it's sort of copyright that whoever was there got to witness it or to absorb it, and then they just erase it, uh, it's gone in the sand. And uh, I found that fascinating itself. And there's, there's, a, there's a great uh, uh, YouTube talk on 
the uh, complexity of uh, uh, patterning in mathematics and African dance. I had to watch it four times to understand it because that's nice. how complicated the patterning was. Nice. So Neil, what's your take on um, math programs that t kind of optimize utility? I'm, I'm taking us in a slightly different direction. I yeah, love the idea around potential, but for the, uh, for the, for the pragmatist listener, yeah. um, what is your sense of programs like Singapore math that really kind of are designed to take the median test score and improve it and those kinds of uh, uh, prog math programming that, that optimizes utility. I, I actually, I, I actually like some of the elements of Singapore math. I mean, I like the idea of all the students showing the results and putting their sort of slate up and, you know, I got to share my answer and I actually like some of the elements of it. Um, the, the issue I have with utility and there's a great quote, which I shared on Twitter and it, it was my almost second tweet which had a thousand likes was that it was um, based on um, reading uh, Kylene Beer's quote that said, um, you know, if we teach a child to read who then has no desire to read, we've created a liter we've created a literate illiterate and no test score will erase that damage. There you go. Okay. So for me, the most important engine is a student's own curiosity because if they're curious they will meet all the standards and the mastery they'll get there if you take away the curiosity um there isn't a guarantee that they really understand what they're doing they're just aping a lot of procedures over and over and over again just to get to the test test is over why do we have math review in september why to review something which by definition uh, isn't learning something like, you know, I know how to, you know, walk or, you know, make toast or whatever. I don't need to repeat it, but we always have review because we know that students forgot it. Well, if they forgot it, they didn't learn it. Like there's certain things that you should, it should be muscle memory. There are certain things I get, okay, fine. They're, they might have been, but the, the basic ideas of intuition of how to multiply and have your different strategies and things like that, that should be hardwired, baked in fairly early on. Like, I don't care if, if, if I ask a student, okay, what's 63 times 17? I actually don't care about the answer. What I care about is, okay, tell me how you want to approach it. Tell me yeah. what you want to do. I'll help you out with the calculations. Let's, you know, like, let's, we can get the answer in the calculator, but if you want to tell me your strategy about, you know, whatever it's going to be and talk me through it and that five minute dialogue, we're actually going to probably even forget to even like calculate the answer and see if it's right. That to me is the most important thing. Sunil, we like to end things off on our podcast with a section we like to call the Furious Five. And it's just going to be five uh quick rapid fire questions that don't necessarily have anything to do with what we've talked about tonight we're just trying to end on a fun high note uh so we'll get started we we encourage quick rapid fire one or two sentence answers on these <laughs> so question number one of the furious five uh what is the best meal that you have eaten recently uh the best meal that i ate recently uh was uh, a pizza place that I ordered. Um, they just opened up. They actually have an oven which 
yeah, it cooks a thousand degrees. They import the flour from Italy. Oh they were just a startup, super, super thin crust. I just got like a very basic margarita pizza because I wanted to taste the sauce and the cheese and the basil. And it was like a symphony in my mouth. It's like, okay, I am now going to be coming back. It's like, you're locked in. You're, you're going to be like going to this place. And it was that perfect, hot, nice. simple pizza. So yes, that was recent. My nice. Favorite. Awesome. What's the best movie or TV show that you have watched recently? Uh, the best TV show, and I would say it's probably, it's, it's going to be in my top five TV shows of all time. And I watched it four times. Once with my daughter is The Queen's Gambit. Okay, excellent. You are probably about the 200th person to recommend that to us. Um, I haven't gotten around to it yet, but I promise I will. It is, it's absolutely like, you pick up on things that you missed. Like I picked up things in the third and fourth watchings I missed in the first and second. It is so detailed in every respect. You'll love it the first time, you love it the second time. It's just one of those wonderful narratives, which, yeah, I mean, of course, it was like one of the most highly watched short series Netflix of all time. And there's a good reason why. Nice. If you could have a cup of coffee with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Uh, so it's one person, right? One person. Uh, I would say I'm going to go into the music bucket and I'm going to say James Marshall Hendricks. Nice. Right. Nice. Well, that precludes my next question, I think, which was going to be uh, if you were on a desert island with one album, what would it be and why? Because I think we all know which direction you're going. Um, so I'm going to switch it up here and ask you something completely different. Uh, what's your favorite book of all time? Favorite book of all time. Um, let's see. I mean, I'm going to rummage through my past. Uh, Other than Pie of Life and Matthew. Yeah, I know Pie of Life. Um, I think the book, and I read it uh, probably the fastest. Um, and I, Why am I forgetting the title? But it was something... Uh, my Tea with Morty. Okay. Um, and it was basically about this person who kept having this sort of um, ritualistic tea every day with this person who was dying of cancer. And the, there's, a, there's a wonderful uh, organic migration of this sort of energy of this person who's ailing on to this other person and it's it's a wonderful way of the energy to uh come from this ailing person into this living person it's it's a, i read this i think in four hours wow okay yeah. our last question of the furious five uh we like to call the contrarian question and it's really adam's question so i'm going to turn it over to him for that sure so no you've you spent a lot of time thinking about math i'm just a country mathematician but it seems like the colleges almost over-index and overvalue uh, the math portion of standardized testing. They love 800s on ACTs. They, I mean, uh, 800s on SATs, 36s on ACTs. What do you know true about the results of standardized math testing that maybe your colleagues in the math leadership thinking space would disagree with you on? Um, disagree. 
that's a good question. Uh, I think what they would probably disagree is that I think standardized testing is a it's not just a colossal waste of time. It's actually um, it's actually injurious to yeah. people um, because this idea that if you need these this score on these uh, test items, eight hundred, whatever it be, and skewed towards math, um, I, I can tell you right now, and because this is related to your question, if someone gave me students at the beginning of high school and I could keep them for four years. All I would do is play poker and chess with them for four years, and they will outperform every one of the students who took a standard math curriculum. Wow. wow. It's just that it's, I'm looking for creativity and thinking and standardized testing does not do that. And I, if I'm an employer, if I'm, I want, if I'm gonna go standardized testing anything, let's test the creativity of students. Let's see what kind of creative ideas, like here's a toothpick, sorry, here's a paperclip. This is an old Sir Ken Robinson talk, you know, uh, rest his soul, you know, where he would say, okay, here's a, a paperclip, give me all the different uses for a paperclip. Yeah. And then part of divergent thinking would be, well, does a paperclip have to be that size or can it be 200 feet tall? Can it be made of rubber? Like that's, that's the creative thinking, which I think we want in society. Sunil, it has been so much fun to have you on. We agree with you on basically everything, <laughs> uh, which I don't think has ever happened on an episode of Ready Teacher One before. So uh, where, can our, where can our listeners find you on social media? Well, you can definitely find me at uh, Twitter at Math Garden. Um, I'm always there tweeting away and retweeting 99% uh, math stuff, but usually 1% of the time I'll throw in some music or something sort of curveball. I threw in a, a celebration of the mad uh, art comic artist, Al Jaffe, who turned 100. I was a big Mad Magazine fan, 70s. So yeah, it's mostly math and, you know, most of the issues which are, you know, burning, uh, you know, in most, I think most of us, which is math education, equity, race, bias, all these things. And Fantastic. we're doing it for the kids in the classroom. Like that's where we, yeah. everything has to percolate and get down to the kids in the classroom. That's what our goal should be. And if it doesn't get down to the kids in the classroom, then I fail. Amen. Awesome. Sunil, thank you so very much. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you tonight.